Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to Casus Belli, the podcast about war, history, and geography. Before beginning our next episode, I just want to cover some housekeeping stuff from last time. First, transcripts for this episode and all episodes can be found at the Casus Belli blog at casusbellipodcast.blogspot.com. For those interested, each transcript is moderately footnoted so you can review my source material. Some of it is behind a paywall, though, so I apologize for that. Anyway, in this episode, we'll be discussing the ongoing American war in Afghanistan. This will probably take about two or three episodes, and God, I hope it doesn't take four. Regardless, let's begin Graveyard of Empires Part 1, Maharbal's Warning. Afghanistan is not a country. Okay, in the strictest, most academic sense of the term, it is indeed a country. But in just about every other sense, it is not. Typically what modern Westerners mean when they call some place a country is a nation-state. Unfortunately, Afghanistan is sorely lacking in both nationhood and statehood. Let's begin with statehood because that's a little easier to wrap your head around. What comprises a modern state? Well, a functioning government certainly ranks highly on that list. Next, some sort of coercive element for foreign and domestic challenges helps, i.e. a police force and a military. Third, though clearly not last, and probably greatest of all actually, the state needs legitimacy. While Afghanistan certainly has elements of all these, they are by no means coherent or cohesive. The government functions as little more than the fiefdom of Kabul and its various vassals. There's an army and a police force, but they are completely dependent on U.S. and Allied support. Lastly, the Afghan state almost entirely lacks legitimacy in huge swaths of the country. Yes, elections have been increasingly well-run and open, but in much of the country they still don't have much buy-in from the public. Lastly, the government is incredibly corrupt and in many cases doesn't at all represent the will of the people. This leads me to discussing the nationhood side of the coin. What nation is represented in Afghanistan? Is everyone in Afghanistan really an Afghan? Does that question really even make any sense? The answer to this is a certifiable no. There is no Afghan people. The list of ethnic groups that essentially constitute their own nations in Afghanistan is a long one. There are Pashtuns, Turkmen, Tajiks, Baluchis, the Hazara, and more. This might not be a problem if nationhood among these various peoples were conceived in a sort of Western, Anglo-colonial, democratic sense, but they are not. Personal loyalty within these groups is often tied to family, tribe, and local community, as opposed to a larger national identity. My point, in short, is that Afghanistan lacks the basic necessities of nationhood. So then, how do we evaluate the near-endless American war in the country of the past decade? What has been the point exactly? As Otto von Bismarck famously said, woe to the statesmen whose reasons for entering a war do not seem so clear at its end as at its beginning. To anyone who has even sort of been paying attention, the reason the US entered in the first place is obvious, to hunt down Osama bin Laden and destroy Al-Qaeda. Well, that mission was a resounding success. So why does it seem like the U.S. lost the war despite the fact that it accomplished its two initial goals? Well, the short answer is that the United States changed its goals less than a year after the war started. The long answer is, well, the long answer is the rest of this podcast. So hunger down, because we're about to open up about a dozen different cans of worms and unpack a whole lot of cultural and political baggage that has been accumulating since at least the 1980s. So strap your K-pots on, because here we go. The beginning seems like a pretty good place to start, so let's go there. Though triggered by the attacks on the Pentagon and Twin Towers in New York City, the American venture in Afghanistan began on October 7, 2001, 
when the U.S. launched sorties to destroy Taliban fighters and al-Qaeda training camps. This only constituted a preparatory bombardment, though. Soon, the U.S. 5th Special Forces Group would be leading the charge on Kabul to overthrow the Taliban. Early on, the goals were fairly clear. Destroy the Taliban and eliminate al-Qaeda. Though obviously a nearly impossible task in retrospect, it was nonetheless the objective at the time. It must be said, though, that without the burdens of nation-building added later, this was within the realm of possibility. The Taliban fancied themselves a legitimate government and tended to operate accordingly in some instances. They offered to try Osama bin Laden themselves, which the Bush administration understandably declined, and their soldiers operated more or less like a standing army. During the early war, some Taliban leaders referred to themselves as generals and surrendered in the classic white flag sense, thereafter considering themselves POWs. Eventually, though, this dynamic would alter significantly. The first six months of America's war in Afghanistan was an absolutely thrilling period. Characterized by fast-moving, improvised campaigns to capture huge swaths of the country, it has the makings of the best action movies ever made. There were Rambo elements of running gunfights, immense aerial bombardments, and even cavalry charges. It really has everything, and it's a story not often told. On top of that, it was all done by a relatively small number of American Special Forces soldiers. This was the first time the U.S. military allowed the Green Berets to take on such a huge role and act independently of a regular force. Their story begins on October 19, 2001, when two Operational Detachment Alphas, also known as ODAs or A-teams, the Special Forces' primary maneuver element, were flown into northern Afghanistan to meet with Northern Alliance commanders. From here, they would coordinate with and train anti-Taliban fighters in preparation for a spring offensive. Within days, however, plans would change. Rather than waiting for the spring thaw, the SF soldiers would lead their Afghan allies on a drive south toward Kabul. With snow already on the ground, speed would be paramount. By this time, the equivalent of an entire company of 5th Group was now in country, and each ODA was assigned to what amounted to an Afghan warband. The two most prominent would be attached to General Abdul Rashid Dostum near Mazari Sharif and Fahim Khan near Kabul. These two represented the most influential warlords in northern Afghanistan. ODA 555, the Triple Nickel, was tasked with taking Bagram Airfield with Fahim Khan. Barely 48 hours after arriving in Afghanistan, they would find themselves coordinating a massive battle to take the field. The small SF team would battle some 7,000 Taliban fighters and come out victorious, doing more damage than the entire Northern Alliance men had been able to do in years of fighting the Taliban. Key to this success was close air support, or CAS coordination. Using the latest in laser targeting technology, the ODA was able to designate targets directly to U.S. aircraft circling overhead. After destroying every piece of artillery and armor on the field, the SF soldiers and their new allies moved into Bagram to clear it. Two days later, and the airfield was theirs. At the same time, far to the north, ODA 595 was coordinating the attack on Mazari Sharif with General Dostum. In a similar assault as that on Bagram, the Americans rained down a torrent of lead and high explosive that lasted days. Allied aircraft remained overhead, offering their munitions to destroy at a moment's notice any Taliban fighter brave or stupid enough to stick his head up from whatever hole he was hiding in. On October 21st, the initial attack on the outlying village of Bishkab began. Bishkab was defended by an impressive array of captured Russian equipment and men dug into trenches. Worse, there was about a mile of open ground in front of it, that Afghan infantry and cavalry would have to traverse. Their saving grace would be American air power, though, which managed to destroy most of the Taliban's heavier weapons. After crossing the expanse under withering but inaccurate fire, the Afghans managed to capture the village. 
The next day, another outlying village, Kobaki, would be taken. During these battles, Captain Nelson, commander of ODA-595, sent a situation report to his battalion commander that highlights the incredible feats the special forces and their Afghan allies were accomplishing. A portion of it reads, quote, I am advising a man on how to best employ light infantry and horse cavalry in the attack against Taliban T-55s, mortars, artillery, personnel carriers, and machine guns, a tactic which I think became outdated with the invention of the Gatling gun. The Mujahideen have done this every day we have been here on the ground. They have attacked with 10 rounds of ammunition per man, with snipers having less than 100 rounds, little water, and less food. I have observed a PK gunner who walked 10 plus miles to get to the fight, who is proud to show me his artificial leg from the knee down. We have witnessed the horse cavalry bounding overwatch from spur to spur to attack Taliban strongpoints, the last several kilometers under mortar, artillery, and sniper fire. There is little medical care if injured, only a donkey ride to the aid station, which is a dirt hut. I think the Mujahideen are doing very well with what they have." End quote. Captain Nelson's report absolutely demonstrates the bravery and tenacity of the Afghans fighting the Taliban, as well as his irritation with the higher headquarters. It's incredible to me the difficulties they faced in defeating the Taliban. Scarce ammunition, little food, and essentially no medical supplies besides what the medical sergeants carried in their packs. It's almost unimaginable that in 2001 there was a cavalry assault against a fortified position with machine guns and mortars. How this hasn't been made into a movie yet, I have no idea. On November 2nd, ODA 534 arrived nearby and linked up with Atta Muhammad Noor, another regional warlord. They would assist ODA 595 in securing the rest of the outlying villages until, on November 9th, the actual assault of Mazari Sharif began with two prongs of Afghan soldiers rushing forward to take the town. With Mazari Sharif captured, ODA 555 was now able to turn on Kabul. Initiating their assault on November 11th, the special forces directed the Afghan soldiers in a main drive from the north, but included a westward envelopment. Two days later, Kabul had fallen and the Taliban were on their knees. The Green Braves had achieved a stunning victory. With around 100 boots on the ground, American forces had managed to completely unseat their primary adversaries, all while suffering zero American casualties to date. The enemy had been evicted from northern, eastern, and western Afghanistan. All that remained was their southern stronghold of Kandahar and, of course, Al-Qaeda. This brings us to the most famous battle of the whole early Afghan war, Tora Bora. Tora Bora is located in the Spingar, or White Mountains, east of Kabul. Even in the summer, the mountain peaks remain covered in ice and snow, and elevations in the valleys remain several thousand feet above sea level. Fighting here would pit the men against the environment just as much as the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. Even by Afghan standards, these are remote wildlands. So naturally, Taliban and Al-Qaeda fighters had been spotted moving into the labyrinthine Alpine cave complex. ODA-563 was sent to flush them out. This would be no easy task. Afghans had many times driven back their enemies from these imposing heights. First the British in the 19th century, and more recently the Soviets in the 1980s. At the time, many planners and experts believed that these caves were heavily fortified and loaded for bear with munitions of every sort. Three ODAs were assigned to the Tora Bora mission, and once again each was given an Afghan warband, this time all under the influence of one Hazrat Ali. Considering the known dubious loyalty of local warlords and their fighters, the men were put on the American payroll, though this provided little comfort to the American partners. They would search high and low, but at all times would remain hamstrung by Ali and his men. No one was ever quite certain where the Afghan loyalties lie, 
or whom they were protecting. Despite earning the trust of their partners, the Green Braves never fully trusted them, nor should they have, because they almost certainly allowed Osama bin Laden to escape. Even if the Afghan warlords had been totally committed to the American mission, it's still uncertain how successful it would have been. The area is so vast and the terrain so unforgiving that trying to find one man in all of it is like trying to find one particular bunny rabbit in the whole state of West Virginia. After almost two weeks of bombing and searching, UBL remained on the lam. Tora Bora was not a total loss, though. U.S. soldiers gained a tremendous amount of knowledge about the Spingar and eastern Afghanistan, as well as killing 300 Taliban and AQ fighters. Additionally, American troops had gained the trust of key local commanders that would serve as partners for years to come. Following Tora Bora, ever-increasing conventional forces would arrive in Afghanistan, and the nature of the conflict would transition permanently. Though the special forces would retain a central role in the conflict, even today they are no longer the key movers and shakers. By the spring fighting season of 2003, conventional forces dominated the terrain and conventional commanders took charge. This is also when the mission and objectives changed for good. High up the chain of command, it had been decided that simply destroying the enemy was not sufficient, but that Afghanistan needed to be built into what Americans think a country should be. This is where the war was lost. Not in the streets of Kabul or the poppy fields outside Kandahar, but rather in the White House and the Pentagon. Hindsight being 2020, it is hard to imagine how the vague objectives set so many years ago could have possibly been achieved. But how did the United States get itself into such an intractable war, where seemingly no matter what was done, the enemy never really seemed to go away? Sure, they were repulsed at times, and even on the run, but as much as they were beaten down, rarely did anything seem to be built up either. For all the talk of nation-building, there seems to be very little to show for it well over a decade later. When the second phase of the Afghan war got underway, counterinsurgency as we think of it today had not yet been devised, but a sort of proto-coin strategy centered on counterterrorism was in place. In retrospect, this doesn't really seem to have been a top-down decision, but rather an organic result of what military leadership wanted and needed to accomplish, combined with the administration's neoconservative ideals. This isn't meant to be a dig at neoconservatism or the administration, simply an observation. Their neocon principles certainly had a large influence on how they chose to prosecute the war, but it must be said that at the time, it's hard to imagine anyone choosing a different path. Realpolitik was out of fashion, and foreign policy realists were a small, uninfluential band on the outskirts of Washington policymaking. Obviously, the CT mission against Al-Qaeda had to be fought. AQ needed to be hunted down and destroyed in every village and cave. But defeating the Taliban offered another set of challenges. Even early in the war, it seems that commanders and planners knew that they could defeat them on the battlefield, but that getting the population to buy into American effort would be much more difficult. So parallel wars were fought. On the one side, the special forces led the charge against Al-Qaeda, raiding cells and villages while airstrikes destroyed remote weapons caches and training camps. On the other side, conventional forces were focused on destroying the Taliban in direct action, while at the same time securing ground from Taliban influence. This is where our problems arise. It wouldn't be until 2010 that the surge with General Petraeus' newly devised counterinsurgency field manual would arrive. Prior to that, soldiers had to learn how to accomplish their mission on the fly and try to retain lessons learned from previous units. To compound this problem, the U.S. government and its various organs had competing goals. The U.S. military would get tasked with way more than simply defeating the Taliban and establishing some sort of local government, but also with creating a modern nation from scratch. 
Schools needed to be built, wells needed to be dug, and roads needed to be paved, all to prop up some neoconservative idea of what Afghanistan should be. Now all of this is well and good, except that it is rather missing the point. Sure, in Kabul, all of these things are probably fairly well appreciated, but throughout the rest of the country, it's not certain that this did much good. It unfortunately belies a recurring problem of American efforts in Afghanistan, that in some instances, projects were undertaken to appease the home front rather than to actually win the war. The DEA and opium hunting is a primary example. Yes, the opium trade funded the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, but it also provided a substantial income to many of the people of Afghanistan, especially in Helmand. So the U.S. government and the DEA decided they wanted to go in and destroy opium production in Helmand province, which sounds nice on paper, but doesn't actually make all that much sense on the ground. For one, the local Pashtuns don't have the same taboo against growing opium that we do in the United States. They generally consider it to be about as morally reprehensible as, say, growing tobacco or brewing beer. Now these Americans show up and tell some peasant poppy farmer that they're going to burn his crops, but they will help him grow wheat or something instead. Where will this man's loyalties lie in the future? He is certainly skeptical of Americans now that they have destroyed his income for the year and is driven closer to the Taliban. If he is young enough, he may even go join the Taliban now in order to make a salary to offset the losses he just took. If he is too old, his son is now likely to go join the Taliban for that salary. Even if they don't join the Taliban, though, they definitely won't be alerting American troops to IEDs or telling them who the Taliban leaders are in the area. By attempting to accomplish one goal, American leadership has directly impeded another. This typifies the mid-Afghan war. Thankfully, the counter-narcotics mission was eventually abandoned, but it significantly set back American progress for years, particularly in the Taliban-infested South. In addition to counterproductive goals, further complicating matters were unreliable regional partners. Since entering into Afghanistan, the U.S. military has been extremely reliant on Pakistani assistance and cooperation. Literally tons of supplies flow north from Pakistan through the Khyber Pass into Afghanistan. Additionally, the United States relies on Pakistan to combat the Pakistani Taliban, which runs rampant in the country's northern province of Baluchistan. Unfortunately, the Taliban had the backing of a professional and experienced ally right next door, the Pakistani Intelligence Service, or ISI. Though largely unknown outside of military or intelligence circles until fairly recently, the role the ISI has played in backing the Taliban has become accepted by a widening range of authorities both in the media and the government. The idea that America's allies in the region would secretly be backing our primary adversary has grown from a conspiracy theory to what amounts to officially accepted fact in every way that matters. Former Afghan President Hamid Karzai has explicitly blamed Pakistani officials of backing terrorist activities within Pakistan and allowing these fighters to cross into his country. He has also accused them of making an attempt on his life. Former U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert Gates publicly stated that the Pakistani government plays both sides. He may not have implicated them in directly supporting the Taliban, but he did acknowledge that their interests are not entirely aligned with those of the United States government, and that they may even be in league with organizations hostile to the U.S. Admiral Mike Mullen indicated that the ISI likely has links to the Haqqani network. In the wake of the WikiLeaks scandal, it was revealed that a large number of American intelligence reports contained information incriminating the government in Islamabad and assisting groups hostile to American forces in Afghanistan. Lastly, it is almost certain, though difficult to prove or document, that the ISI knew Osama bin Laden was in Pakistan. The fact that the CIA was able to discover and track him suggests the ISI would have known he was there regardless of whether or not they were in cahoots, considering their involvement in extremist groups in Baluchistan.
The Obama administration was likely aware of the Pakistani government's activities and thus chose not to inform them of the impending raid on bin Laden's compound, knowing the Pakistanis would tip him off. But to what extent is the ISI involved in the Taliban and other extremist groups, and what is their endgame? They claim that they were involved until September 11, 2001, but broke ties after that date. This is highly unlikely. It's possible that they wish for a return of control of Afghanistan to the Taliban so that they can have the new government in their pocket. But this seems unlikely as well. One probable explanation is that the ISI simply wishes to retain control over the Taliban in order to minimize problems within Baluchistan, and a side effect of this is that they contribute in some form to American casualties in Afghanistan. This theory suggests limited involvement, though, which some say is absolutely not the case. An instance in which more active involvement is more likely is one in which the ISI has essentially separated itself from the rest of the Pakistani government and operates independently. There are many government officials and journalists who sub subscribe to this notion that the ISI simply does not answer to anyone. Considering that many of the ISI agents hail from western Pakistan and have family ties to the movements there, it does not seem so far-fetched that they would be actively involved in the operations of these organizations. In this scenario, the elements of the Pakistani government that supported the Taliban are rogue and do not represent the aims of the larger government. This, however, does not absolve the higher leadership of responsibility which they clearly bear. In all likelihood, the answer is a mix between the two more probable scenarios. The ISI has rogue elements working without authorization from the larger government, but the larger government allows it to continue in their own self-interest. This isn't to say that Pakistan as a whole is benefiting from knowingly harboring the Taliban, though. They certainly have suffered dearly. Between 2010 and 2016, Pakistan suffered literally thousands of terrorist attacks. Rather, they are trying to maintain the chaotic status quo in order to retain power. Though obviously unsustainable, there isn't exactly a clear solution. This chaotic violence is easier to withstand because it generally takes place in the federally administered tribal areas that the Taliban call home in the northwest. Additionally, the Pakistani army and police have carried out countless sweeps and counter-terror raids that garner huge public support, especially after particularly gruesome massacres. And that is just the start of it. There is still much to cover. In the coming installments, we will discuss the history and rise of the Taliban, the more recent war since the surge, and finally how our assumptions about the war were deeply flawed from its very outset. Unfortunately for the Americans, they had the same problem Hannibal did. In Livy's History of Rome, Maharbal famously says to Hannibal, Vincati skis, Hannibal. Victoria Utinescus. You know how to gain victory, but not how to use it. <laughs>